even to this day, when a movie comes along that kind of harkens back or feels like a movie of the 70s, whether it be the tone of it or sort of the, the risks it takes. I, I often say that the movies of the 70s were really taking risks in ways that the movies of the 80s did not. Then I, I get this sort of like warm feeling like, ah, oh, yeah, this is, these are my people, <laughs> you know? Those are the ones I tend to gravitate toward and watch over and over again. Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, and back in the early 2000s, I managed a couple of comic book shops and ran a couple of video stores too. Those were the days. Lately, I host a weekly radio program, publish the occasional short story, and spend my Sunday nights running a live show I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me on stage asking some very silly questions every Sunday at 8 p.m. at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. My guest today is Tom McWeeny. Tom is a cartoonist and storyteller I first discovered when I wandered into a comic shop in 1986 and stumbled onto the first issue of a rather strange-looking but extremely promising comic book called Roachmill. I remember thinking, what is with this Clint Eastwood-looking guy with bug arms? I soon learned Roachmill was an alien-related exterminator, a super cool character who kept being put into tighter and tighter situations that he was forced to think and fight his way out of. It was a good book, raw but promising. I continued to follow the adventures of Roachmill, and the book changed as it went along, beginning as a dark mood piece with hints of black humor that somehow evolved over the course of 16 issues into something much more broadly comedic. Tom McWeeny's work continued to evolve as well. His original rougher pen-and-ink collaborations with Rich Hedden smoothed out over time, and his solo work became more and more polished until, quite frankly, his line art and color work has arrived at something eye-catchingly gorgeous. This is the kind of art you badly want to see on a t-shirt or framed in a poster work on your wall. And good news, a lot of it is available in those exact formats. Google his name, it's out there and available to buy. Okay, over the years, Tom's worked on projects and designs for what seems like every major studio. This list includes Marvel, DC, Hasbro, Mattel, Nickelodeon, Fisher-Price, and many more. Like I said at the beginning, I first discovered Tom's work back in 1986 at my local comic shop. More recently, I rediscovered him when I stumbled onto his Instagram page and a new project of his that I've taken to calling Movie the Animated Series, because I'm not actually sure what it's really called, but Tom will probably correct me about it in a moment. Okay. So, Tom's been designing and posting these character sheets for famous movies. Things like Alien, The Thing, Robocop, Raising Arizona, and many more. It's mostly genre and sci-fi flicks, and he's been rendering all these films in the style of animated cartoon shows. Now, the level of detail and how precisely he's captured certain actors in signature character looks, I sometimes can't believe my eyes. I love this project so much that it made me reach out to Tom just so I could chat with him about this and about his opinions and thoughts on genre films from the 70s and 80s and a whole whack of other things, I'm sure. Welcome to the show, Tom McWeeny. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Tom, up until now, I never knew just how badly I needed an animated version of Kurt Russell's McCready in my life, <laughs> or Hart Bachner's Ellis, or William Sanderson's Sebastian. But now, I want all your animated show versions to exist for real. <laughs> I cannot believe how much life you imbue into your versions of some of these character actors from the movies, these likenesses, and while they're quite simplified, they're absolutely pitch perfect in every case. Can you tell me a little bit about this project and how it came to be? And uh, also, does the project as a whole have a name? I've just been calling it Movie the Animated Series when I direct people to it. Yeah, no, that's a pretty accurate description. I mean, uh, no, it has no real purpose other than, you know, I get downtime between my paying gigs. And, you know, it's, it's the first one I did was Carpenter's The Thing. And um, mainly the reason I did it was because while I was watching the movie a few years back, I suddenly realized that just literally everyone in that cast had a great face. Like, it is a movie just filled with great character actors. And so I just started thinking, oh, it would be kind of great to draw all these guys. And that's sort of where it started. The, the thinking, too, was I've seen a lot of other artists do, you know, hey, here's my animated version of, you know, what if, you know, Galaxy Quest was a cartoon? Or what if Star Wars was a cartoon? And the one thing they tend, or at least I tried to do differently, is I wanted it, I wanted it to make it look like there was a, the cartoon had all the actors playing the part. So I wanted to do animated caricatures of the actual people who play the role versus just a sort of standard animated version of what McCready would look like. I wanted it to look like Kurt Russell. <laughs> and that's where it sort of sprang from. So each one after that was sort of followed that template, which is, you know, Blade Runner had to look like Harrison Ford and Mad Max had to look like Mel Gibson. And uh, so, you know, that was the fun of it really was to sort of capture their likenesses. And also uh, the interesting thing is to sort of pick what particular sort of shot in the movie you want to use for a particular character. Like certain characters stay generally the same in a movie, but other characters, you know, they change outfits, they look differently at the beginning of the movie than they do at the end of the movie. So it, it's sort of picking the version of that character through the course of the story where people can look at it and know right away what scene it was from. Like a good case of that is in my RoboCop lineup is uh, the villain, Clarence Boddicker. I have him standing there with the hand grenade in his hand and the pin of the hand grenade in his teeth. And you know it's the scene where he kills the head of OCP, you know, right away, as soon as you see it. And so that's what I try to do. I try to pick moments that as soon as they see the character and they see the pose, they know, oh, this is that scene later in the movie when this happens. And kind of kind of gives a little bit of a, a narrative feel to the whole thing. Wow, well, of course, when I first reached out to you, I said, hey, I've got an idea for a cool movie you could design character sheets for, and you replied, everyone does. Which, um, yeah. <laughs> even though we were communicating in text, I felt like I could hear this tired, resigned tone of your voice that you're saying to people over and over. Anyway, um, my suggestion to you was 1986's Night of the Creeps, which is a uh, Fred Decker sci-fi, college-hazing, grizzled cop with a dark secret serial killer zombie film. And like a lot of people, I think Night of the Creeps is a masterpiece, and the characters, their looks in particular, are so iconic, especially 
And here I'll single out one of John Carpenter's regular players, Tom Atkins, as the grizzled detective character. But then you surprised me, Tom. You told me you've never seen it. No, I haven't. So now the surprise is on you. This whole podcast is just an excuse to publicly shame you. <laughs> wow. Some strong feelings on uh, Night of the Creeps. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, nobody has to see every movie uh, except me. That's, that's what OCD is good for. Yeah, I mean, usually, usually like a movie like that, like if I did see it in the theater when it came out, it'll show up on my radar because a friend of mine would recommend it. But no, I don't, I don't, you're the first person I think have ever brought that movie up to me, to be honest with you. I'm not exaggerating. So, but you, you, you know, your, your love of it has intrigued me. And now I'm like, all right, if I can sort of dig it up somewhere, give it a watch so that I can tell you how wrong you are. Oh, you'll be able to dig that up. Um, like, like so many things when I recommend a movie, this movie came out in 1986. There's a really good chance anyone watching it today goes, no, doesn't work. Yeah. Too rooted in a period, too bad hair, giant shoulder pads, uh, or the premise only works if you happened to be 15 years old when you saw it. Right. Uh, it's so many, so many things. But Night of the Creeps is a masterpiece. So. Right. Well, I mean, we're all we're all <laughs> guilty. We're all guilty of that that nostalgic feel for a movie. I mean, that's. You know, we all have movies that are probably not the greatest movies in the world, but because of the timing of when we saw them or what was going on in our lives or the way they affected us, you know, they've sort of rooted themselves, uh, I mean, in our lives. And, and the perfect example of that is Quentin Tarantino. I mean, I don't know if you've read his book, Cinema Speculation, but he he talks poetically about these really, really mostly awful movies from the 70s that you know he just loved because of he was eight years old when he saw this movie that was you know he should have never been in the theater seeing and i totally get that and i think that's why i like listening to him talk about film is because it's all that deep-seated kind of love that comes out and uh, we all have those movies well tom that's a perfect transition because when you and i started uh, corresponding leading up to this conversation you hinted that you had some pretty strong thoughts on a pile of films and their place in history and just how important some of them really are to you, and in some cases, to all of filmmaking as a whole. I am very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts on some of these classics. Uh, just one last thing. For the listener, if you'd like to hear a more in-depth interview with Tom about his career as a whole, and about many of the projects he, he himself has worked on, why don't you guys check out Fortress of Comic News, episode 104, which is a pretty great podcast hour where Tom talks about his stuff. Tom. Why don't you get us started? Tell us a little bit about these films that you have real strong thoughts on. Okay. Well, the first film I'm going to talk about is still one that affects me to this day because mainly because of the age that I saw it at, like I was discussing about with Quentin Tarantino, which was um, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, the, the second movie in the Apes series. It came out in 1971. Now, I don't know 100% sure if I saw it in 71 may have seen it on a re-release but if i did I'm, the most i could say was maybe a year or two later so let's just say i was born in 65 so let's just say i was somewhere between six and eight when i saw this movie and i don't recall if i had seen the first one prior to seeing it not that that matters when you're that young you know you're just happy to be in a movie theater and um i think any discussion of that movie because people tend to sort of like look at that film as sort of like, eh, it's sort of an okay sequel to Planet of the Apes. 
But I think context is really important with Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And I think the main context is exactly what I was just saying. The, the year, you know, 1971. And the thing people tend to forget about the Apes movies is that until Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, they were rated G, general audience. That means anybody could walk into them and watch them. And there is some harsh stuff in the first Planet of the Apes movie, the lobotomy scene alone. Beneath tops that in spades. Like, I, as a matter of fact, Planet seems genuinely tame compared to Beneath. And that's the thing that really resonated with me, watching that at such an early age. You know, and I've, I've watched it many, many times since. And, you know, the general criticisms of it are that the first, say, 60% of it or so, because it's a very short movie, it's a very tight movie, or, you know, generally like a, a compressed recap of the first movie. And they're not wrong. There are some good scenes in the early part of the movie. The scene where Brent, right after he crash lands and he's talking with his captain and his captain is blinded by something in the accident and he's dying. It's a good scene. Ursus's speech at the Ape Council is a good scene. James Gregory acts the shit out of that scene. Like he sells that. It also kind of gives you a hint that there's sort of maybe a power move going on in Ape City, which is kind of cool. Like Ursus is just a great character to introduce into sort of what we had seen from the first movie. But, you know, the action sequences with James Franciscus, they're all kind of okay. They, they remind me more of like the Apes TV show that came later on. But then the movie does this thing where it takes this radical left turn into just bonkers. Like the movie just becomes almost another movie once James Franciscus, Brent's character, finds the underground city with the human mutants in it. Everything from sort of like the fact that they sort of have this sort of telepathy, they can sort of spy on the apes uh, mentally. But then there's also like, they can control their enemies and make them like fight each other. Like, what's this all about? And then as the apes sort of move out of Ape City into the Forbidden Zone, they try to fend them off by creating these illusions. And the illusions are essentially, you know, shots of apes being crucified upside down with like blood running out of their nose and their mouth. Then, of course, this image of the lawgiver who, let's keep in mind, let's be very clear, the lawgiver is essentially the apes version of like Jesus. Oh, he's their God figure. And this giant statue appears in the desert and starts bleeding out of the eyes and the nose and the mouth. And I'm like six or seven years old sitting in a movie theater looking at this on a massive screen. And it's like, I remember just being sort of horrified by this, but also like I couldn't take my eyes off it. And um, that's not even the, the worst part. Then they, they get to the apes, the apes get to the city and we, you know, they reveal that the, the mutants are in essentially a melted down St. Patrick's Cathedral worshiping an atomic bomb. They're, they're worshiping a bomb. They're singing hymns to it. Like they view it as an instrument of God's divine power. And I'm sitting there going, who read this script and said, yeah, let's make this movie. You know, Let, let's, this is a great idea for a, a kid's film. Keep in mind, rated G. This is a kid's movie. Once they're in Ape City, you know, 
Some of the humans start committing suicide rather than get captured by the apes. You know, one one of the mutants makes Taylor and Brent like fight themselves to the death. And he, he winds up getting impaled on the spikes of the jail cell wall that they're, you know, fighting in. The whole last third of that movie is just so off the rails for what came before it that I don't think it gets enough credit for like how crazy it is, like how the chances they took. I always say that to people. It's like that movie, the, the last third of that movie took such ridiculous chances. And for the most part, they do land like they they're just like when the when the mutants remove their faces and you see the the muscle tissue underneath who thought about that in a kid's movie so yeah i give it a lot of credit for the sort of the level of craziness in that movie and also too everyone dies the entire planet gets destroyed six or seven years old sitting in the theater all these characters now that i've been following since the beginning of the movie the movie literally ends with every single one of them dead and not only that but you know it's taking place on earth the earth the planet you're sitting on is now gone you know this sort of ominous voiceover narration comes in talking about how you know this insignificant green planet is now dead and i just and the screen goes black is there any movie more 70s than beneath the planet of the apes we've had plenty of movies end with the main characters getting killed you know bonnie and clyde easy rider but Beneath goes, yeah, we're just going to go and just kill everyone at the end of this movie. And to this day, still admire that decision. Like, I, it was such a gutsy call to do that. So I, I, I think it, it doesn't get enough credit for sort of how the parts of it that work and that took chances are just still to this day. I still watch that movie and go, how did this get made? How did, how did this get through to the heads of the studios? Well, if I can just interject one thing. Uh, years ago, I heard an interview with Adam Rifkin. He's a director who made The Dark Backward, among other things, and I, I really love his work. And he was just talking about movies, and he said, you know, I love 70s films because so many of them end on a downer. The hero loses, something bad happens. Right. And he says, and in the moment, I always hate that. But then three days later, I find myself still thinking about these films. They resonate in a way that when everything's tied up in a happy little bow at the end, you just let it go. So having Beneath the Planet of the Apes end with a world-ending event at the age you probably saw it at, it certainly marked you, didn't it? Oh, it absolutely did. And, and, and again, I wasn't old enough to have those same feelings that Rifkin had. I remember just being sort of stunned by it. That, that was my general feeling to this day when I think back to it, was just being like stunned. Now, as a kid, I probably just went out and played with my friends and didn't give it a second thought. It was sort of years later, I guess, I don't know how many years later, when I revisited and I was a little older now. So let's just say I'm 13 or 14. That was the first time when I watched it and I went, wow, they, they ended this with the planet blown up. But also keep in mind that during that time, from the time I saw it in 71 to whenever I saw it again, I was seeing other 70s movies that had that same sort of vibe where the anti-hero you're rooting for gets killed at the end or, or the plan doesn't completely work out. I saw a lot of anti-Westerns where, you know, it isn't the guy with the white hat coming into town and rescuing the town from the bad guy. You know, the, they're all sort of morally ambiguous and movies like McCabe and Mrs. Miller and stuff like that. But 
I was more prepared for it whenever I saw Beneath again for the second time to sort of start to appreciate it. But then I didn't watch Beneath again for a long time, maybe 20 years. Just didn't show up on TV. I didn't have it on DVD. And uh, I don't remember when it was, maybe early 2000s or you know 2010 or somewhere around there. I watched it again. And that's when it, that's when the whole thing started to sink in that like, how did this movie get made? Like, there's no way they would do that with not only the violence of it, the brutality of the, the last third of the movie, the religious iconography, the, the, you know, the anti-nuclear message that's running through it. There's an anti-war message in it, but it's just every, and not, and not only that, but even before the planet dies, before the planet is blown up, Brent is brutally gunned down by the gorillas. Like I, I'm fairly sure that that's the first movie I ever saw where I saw like actual bullet wounds in a person. He gets shot across the chest or across the stomach and it's actual real bullet wounds with like blood pouring out of him. Taylor gets shot in the chest, is bleeding all over himself as he crawls towards Zayas. It's a brutal movie. It's a brutal movie in the way that 70s movies really sort of started to, it became kind of like part of 70s movies, you know, with the whole, hey, we have a little bit more free reign than we did a decade ago. Let's push it. And I think that movie really, it really did push it. I, I think from what I've read about it, they were worried that after the wow ending of the first movie, that anything was going to seem like a letdown. So I think that's probably why they got away with the sort of craziness they were allowed to get away with is because they were worried that people weren't going to be shocked by the second one. And uh, I can say that I, I was very much shocked by Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Even to this day, I still kind of am when I put it on and watch it. Tom, why don't we move ahead? Tell me about one of the uh, the other films that you have a special, it has a special place in your heart or you have huge thoughts on. Okay, the next movie I'm going to talk about, well, sort of talk about two movies sort of in tandem, which is uh, Joe Dante's The Howling and John Carpenter's The Thing. So, you know, I was in high school, um, was really, really into my art class. And um, while I was in my art class in high school, I met this guy, Dan Platt, who was um, a fellow artist. And Dan was really, really good. Like, Dan was way better than a high school kid had the right to be at, at drawing. Like he was leaps and bounds above everybody else. But Dan was also a really good guy. And we, as it turns out, we had sort of common ground in that we were both sort of monster kids. We grew up on universal horror movies, Godzilla movies. So we had that in common. We would talk about that kind of stuff. And right around that same time, 79, 80, 81, sort of makeup practical effects were having a sort of resurgence. And so we were both kind of also on the cusp of that, you know, reading Fangoria, reading Cinefantastique. And so we both really kind of converged at this moment when things were starting to change again after, after the sort of leap that Planet of the Apes made, sort of bringing it back to that, you know, makeup effects kind of stayed the same until about the late 80s. And um, the howling to me, was like, I remember, I found out about The Howling, strangely enough, not in a magazine and not 
through a friend or anything, but it was on a news program. The news program 2020 did a story sort of tacked on to the end of one of their regular episodes about this resurgence in special effects or something like that. It's, it's very vague. I only saw it one time and I only caught, I didn't watch, see the whole thing. I caught the tail end of it. And, and in that they had clips of the howling of the transformation scene, very early clips of it. And I didn't know what it was because they didn't say what it was. They didn't say the name of the movie. And so I'd seen these images of Eddie Quist's face twitching and fangs growing out of his mouth. And I just sitting in front of my TV, just blown away by this. Like, I was like, what is this? Holy. So I could never, I couldn't find out, you know, it wasn't like the internet. I could go on a computer and Google, you know, what was that show? What was on that show I watched? I, I had no way to figure out what it was. I went into school the next day, asked, asked anybody else if they had seen it. Nobody saw it. So one night I have a friend over my house and uh, we had a movie theater within walking distance of my house, which was great. So um, we're bored. And he says to me, hey, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go, uh, go see a movie? Uh, I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, he's like, yeah, we'll go up to, uh, you know, Jackson Cinema. Uh, there's some sort of Kung Fu movie playing up there. And I go, I think to myself, well, I don't really remember specifically what movie's playing there, but I know I know it's not a Kung Fu movie, right? So I say to him, what what movie? And he goes, it's some Kung Fu movie called He Ho Ling, right? <laughs> and I realized that the T from the and the W from Howling had fallen off the theater and he thought it was a Kung Fu movie. So I... I started laughing because I I knew it wasn't a movie. So needless to say, we went and saw The Howling, and I had and I had no idea it was this this movie that I had seen these clips from on 2020, however many months earlier. And it the movie just it blew me away. It blew me away for so many different reasons. Like, you know, aside from the transformation, which is mind boggling at the time for 1981, it was first of all it was the first sort of like horror movie I remember seeing in the theater that sort of intentionally at times tried to be funny. Like it was a really, like it was a horror comedy, you know, horror first, comedy second. And prior to The Howling, my idea of a horror comedy was like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So it was, that was kind of interesting right away. Like I was like, oh, this movie's you know, kind of scary, but it's also there's like jokes in it. But of course then, you know, the, the transformation seems like, you know, I, I can't, I can't over emphasize how much Rob Boutin's work affected me and my friend Dan. He actually, Dan actually wound up working in makeup special effects after we, he graduated college. He went and worked with Rick Baker for a while. He worked with Stan Winston. He was very, very incredibly talented guy. So I, I go see The Howling and um, let's talk about another thing about that movie that doesn't sort of get brought up enough, which is the that's the first movie to really do werewolves. Prior to The Howling, every other movie was, they would call it a werewolf, but it was really a guy with fangs and fur on his face. You know, it was a wolf man. It was not a werewolf. And the fact that this was a giant bipedal wolf, and also too, I remember there's a shot in The Howling, if I recall correctly, where he cracks open a book and there's a shot in the book of like an old wood carving of a werewolf on its hind legs going after some woman or something. I can't remember specifically. And I remember in a book in the library that I checked out in like fifth or sixth grade, seeing that exact same 
image. And so the fact that this movie was bringing that to life was just mind blowing. I thought about oh, this is so cool. Like this is, you know, so we, we go see this movie and uh, I'll just never forget the images of sort of Eddie Quist twisting and writhing in pain as he transformed. And uh, yeah, it just, it just stuck with me. So, you know, I wound up going back and telling my friend Dan, I was like, yeah, you got to go see this movie, The Howling. And uh, he did. And uh, he liked it, but he was much more of a Rick Baker fan. So we used to get into this debate all the time about The Howling versus American Werewolf in London. Oh, if I can just quickly mention, uh, I don't know if this is true or just a rumor that I heard, but I have heard that Joe Dante's vision for the werewolves in his film were that he wanted them to have a resemblance to Wile E. Coyote. And when you know that and you look at the design, you go, it is a little bit baked in there. A little bit. But, you know, at, in 19, when, you know, 1981 or 82, whenever the movie came out, like, I was not thinking that. Mm -hmm. Like, I was thinking, this is unlike anything I've seen on screen before. And anytime a movie does that to me, anytime I see something in a film or on TV that gives me that exact reaction, I have never seen this before then I'm good. Like, that's it. You've got me now. Just don't ruin it. Don't make the movie garbage from here on out. And it wasn't. By today's standards, I think The Howling would, would be viewed as, as a little slow, but it didn't seem slow to me at the time when I saw it in the theater. It does take its time building up. Keep in mind when watching The Howling is that, you know, it is a low-budget movie, but it doesn't look like a low-budget movie. It does have, uh, I would say it builds up to the most amazing bleak brilliant ending well the best part about the ending is the little kid's line hey mom the newscasters turned into werewolf on tv i love that i love the fact that in this sort of sad like you said bleak ending he throws this little joke with this kid watching tv trying to get his mother's attention to, to point out that the newscaster is suddenly turning into a werewolf on tv i just that that's just pitch perfect in my opinion you know well it never hurts even the lowest budget movie having john sales as your screenwriter obviously because we're talking about the howling and i did mention Amer america world i mean to me that's the movie that people tend to remember but I, I actually think The Howling is, is a much better movie than American Werewolf in London. I, I find that American Werewolf in London is a very, very, it's a very thin movie. And I think exactly what I was talking about, the strength of The Howling, which is Eddie Quist's character and Bob Bacardo's performance, is exactly one of the main weaknesses of American Werewolf in London, which is David Naughton is terrible in that movie. <laughs> He's... He's just not good. He's outmatched by Griffin Dunn and Jenny Argeter in all their scenes together. He, he, he can't help but like, there, there's multiple scenes in that movie where if you watch it, like where he's supposed to be like nervous or scared or have some sort of emotion and he's got like a slight smirk on his face. He just, it's amazing to me that Landis didn't look at the dailies and go, yeah, I, I can't use this guy. He's the uh, Hayden Christensen of his time. Kind of, yeah. But I, I just think that American Werewolf in London, it's not a it's not a bad movie. It's got its entertainment value. But I think it 
it's literally a movie held together by a catchy soundtrack and some jokes. Take those out of that movie and you've got nothing. The main character has no character arc whatsoever. Halfway through the movie, he gets sort of, I get sort of sick of him whining about the fact that I'm a werewolf, I'm a werewolf. You know, it's like, all right, yeah, you're a werewolf. And then, then the movie has no ending. It just literally ends. It doesn't build toward anything. There's no payoff for him being a werewolf that you're like, oh man, that was great. And then the other problem with that movie that nobody seems to address is the sort of fundamental change that John Landis made in werewolf lore that kind of would negates most of that movie, which is the two hitchhikers show up at the slaughtered lamb. Everyone's giving them the side eye, you know, they're all being mean to them. Why they're being mean to them, I don't understand, but they are. David Norton's character points out the pentagram on the wall. They get pissed off at him and they're all hiding in that pub because they know there's a werewolf out there and they literally kick them out and say, yeah, stay, stick to the road, stay clear of the moors. Like, so that's sort of horrible in its own right. But then, you know, we see them walking along and they suddenly realize they're on the moors and then it cuts back to the slaughtered lamb and they're like, oh, geez, you know, maybe we shouldn't have sent those kids to their death. You know, the, the, the mom figure in the bar goes, you know, oh, you guys, you shouldn't have done that. So they get attacked by the werewolf and what happens? The people from the tavern all show up with guns and shoot the werewolf dead. And I remember thinking while watching it, well, if it's that easy to kill, why didn't they just do that in the first place? Why didn't they just get a party of guys together with guns and go out and kill this thing mm -hmm. just like any other rogue animal, hunt it down, trap it and kill it. Instead, they send these kids out to get bitten and mauled. And it just, it just bothers me. It bothered me then when I first saw it. And I saw it like mm -hmm. the, I think the weekend it came out and it still bothers me. And it also made the, the werewolf at the end of the movie way too easy to kill. Well, one thing I do like about that, I, I, I actually really love that movie. I love what you have to say about it, but I really do love the film and I forgive <laughs> every flaw that you just got a hundred percent right. And I didn't even talk, I didn't even talk about the flaws in the transformation sequence. It, it is great, though, when somebody points out something and you go, wow, that is an incredible plot point inconsistency that my brain completely overlooked. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to uh, America Werewolf, I think that it's it has so many young teenage male wish fulfillments in it. You've got your great hilarious buddy sequences at the beginning with Griffin Dunn, right. which are they really are charming. Everything with Griffin Dunn is good in that movie. And then when he's recovering in the hospital, the sexy nurse invites him home yes. and sleeps with him. I mean, if there's if there's ever right. been more of a wish fulfillment brought to life in a movie that it almost has no place being in, a great moment again. If you're 13, yeah, I was a little older. When I, I was I went with a bunch of my high school friends, and for the most part, I was you know this is what I said. This is what I said. The movie works its magic. There's no doubt. I went and saw it. I think with like three other guys. And I think I was the only one that didn't like it. And I didn't hate it. I, I Again, I didn't come out hating it. I just came out questioning parts of it. I was very disappointed with the transformation scene. I'm not going to lie. I really, the transformation scene, people always compare the two. And I'm going to tell you the difference between the two, the two mm -hmm. transformation scenes right now, the Howling and American Werewolf in London. When I saw the transformation scene in American Werewolf in London, the packed theater, everyone, when his hand stretched, 
everyone in that theater started to laugh. They laughed through the entire transformation scene. When I saw the howling, not a word. People were disturbed by that transformation. And to me, that's the difference. Quist's transformation is violent. It's kind of wet and messy. There's like snot coming out of his nose. He's slobbering. His whole body seems out of control of himself while he's changing. It really does seem like he's undergoing some sort of ancient curse, which is what a werewolf is. They're cursed. Norton's transformation in the American Werewolf in London is like, oh, I'm changing. Oh, look, my hand grew. <laughs> oh, wait. And now, wait. Oh, look, my other hand is growing. Its body parts are churning like kind of like one at a time. Like it's not, it's not violent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem, he's like, oh, 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 look at my hand. Like it's goofy. I think unintentionally so. My other big complaint is that in The Howling, we see that transformation from literally the beginning of it. He's a human to the very end. He's a werewolf. And now he's interacting with the character who's in the room with him. In American Werewolf in London, I always felt cheated that they cut away before the transformation is finished. It's a cop-out. You set up expectations in the audience. I, I, I talk about this all the time, which is dramatic payoff. Some directors really understand dramatic payoff, and some directors just don't get it at all. Most fall in the middle. A good example of dramatic payoff is Terminator 2. Cameron really understands dramatic payoff. He understands... If I'm going to do two movie, a movie where two Terminators are going to meet, I got to pay the audience off because they're going to have very high expectations about what's going to happen when this happens. And I got to make sure what I give them is more than what they're going to expect. And he does time and time again, from the very, from the very first time they encounter each other in the parking garage underneath that mall to the very end of that movie, every time the two Terminators come together, shit happens that makes you go, oh man. He pays you off. You know, you're sitting in that theater. You're waiting to see two Terminators fight. He delivers. In American Werewolf of London, you're waiting for him to turn into a werewolf. He does. It's kind of lackluster. It's filmed under bright lights, which was John Landis, in my opinion, being way too clever, you know, for his own good. It's not creepy. It's kind of goofy. The audience is laughing, at least when I saw it, they were. And then not only that, but then he just cheats you at the end. He doesn't show. He has that one pan where the camera starts panning up the body of the werewolf. And it, and even then you could tell he's not fully changed because the fur isn't fully covering his body yet. You could still see skin through it. And then just mm -hmm. before he gets to the head, he dissolves to like a shot of the full moon or something like that. And I'm like, ah, oh, that was a ripoff. I, I felt cheated and I, I still do when I watch that movie. I just have one last thought about the uh, the design, and we can we can let our werewolf chat go, <laughs> which I've really enjoyed. Well, one last thing. Sure, sure. You last thing me before I'll last thing you. I told you that it, you know my friend and I were really into makeup effects, so we used to go to comic conventions in New York all the time, whenever because Tom Savini would do them, and we'd always go see Tom Savini. And my friend Dan would pick his brain on how to do you know a life cast or what best foam rubber to use to make uh, masks and things like that. And we were at a convention the summer of 82. And someone asked, what's your thoughts on the Howling versus the American Werewolf in London, the transformation scenes? What's your opinion? And Savini, in my opinion, summed it up perfectly. Some of it's going to be what I already said about it, because that's where it came from, which was Savini pointed out how 
the Howling's transformation is a very violent transformation. It's, it's, it's a very horrific transformation. But he also said, he goes, then once the two werewolves are revealed, he said, I always felt like, I'm paraphrasing all of this now, keep in mind. He said that, generally, he said, Baker is such a, like, a perfectionist with his work. He said that his problem with the werewolf in America, werewolf in London, was he goes, it was just too, like, neat and clean. He said, every piece of fur is like perfectly where it should be. Almost like between takes, somebody was running in with a brush and brushing the werewolf's fur down. And like, mm -hmm. it never looked like a real dog. Like it never looked like, it was never slobbering. And, and he's not wrong about that. And the howling is just the opposite. The fur is just like matted and all over the place. And I think that combined with the fact that Botine had some say in how they photographed his stuff. He knew under bright lights, this stuff wasn't going to really hold up. So he was the one who said, you know, we want to shoot it in this sort of dark purplish light. And his points about that, about Baker and the way the werewolf was just so, so sort of tidy and perfect that I kind of agree with that. I, I think there's something about that. And I don't want to totally put it on, on Baker's feet. I still blame Landis for most of that, the way he shot, the way he shot the transformation and the way he shot the werewolf in most of the, the shots. It was just too much lighting, too much reveal of the sort of fakeness of it all. The one thing I want to add is the, uh, in terms of werewolf design, I really liked what you said when you said in The Howling, this is the first great real werewolf, a man who has become a wolf and is this standing creature. Right. And I love that that exists, but I also love the fact that the monster in American Werewolf in London is like a giant dog. It is not human at all, but what I like is that both those things exist. Right, but as I say to you, it's a dog that can be killed with ordinary bullets. So technically, the name of that movie should have been An American Wolf in London. <laughs> it wasn't a werewolf. It was he turned into a giant dog and then got killed by the cops at the end. It was such a letdown. You know, it is American Werewolf is not a movie that I think is garbage. It, there's good. I don't want. That's why I said I don't want to shit on that movie, but I just don't think it really works. I, I use that term a lot, and I think that comes from doing comics, which is. When you're writing a scene in comics, you, you think to yourself, all right, does this scene work? Does it work with the characters involved? Does it work in, with the story that I've plotted up to this point? Does it move it forward? Does it drag it back? And does the sum of its parts all come together to really make the story work? And so I think there are just parts of that movie that just don't work. But I, I totally understand why a lot of people like that movie. You were on a really good run with chatting about the Rob Bottin effects, and that makes me think that you probably have more to say about other films Rob Bottin has worked on. Well, obviously, everyone knows about Carpenter's The Thing, and for me to sort of go over ad nauseum the effects in that movie, I'll try to keep it brief because everybody has spoken about him, and rightfully so. I still feel that it is the high watermark of practical effects in cinema. Those effects still hold up so miraculously well to this day. And a, a good case in point is, is my son. My son is, um, he's 19 now, but he was 17 when I recommend. He was, he was basically quarantined in the house during COVID and 
So he came to me and he's like, give me some movies to watch. So I was like rubbing my hands together going, okay, let's get going here. And my son, I, I will say, he has very good taste in films. Like he's not one of these kids who just goes to any movie and like he's just happy to be out of the house watching a movie. He, he's, he's, he's got good taste. So I had recommended the thing to him like a year earlier and he, it didn't really sound like his thing. So finally he's trapped at home and I'm like, trust me, watch this movie. It's really cool. And I said to him, the only thing I told him about it, because I didn't, I didn't want him going any preconceived ideas of the movie, is I said to him, when you watch this movie, keep in mind that it was made in 1982 and everything you're seeing on the screen is real. Everything you're seeing had to be built by somebody, constructed by somebody, made by somebody. That's all I'm going to tell you about the movie. He knew it was an alien invasion movie and he knew it was about guys trapped in Antarctica, but that's all he knew. And... When he was done with that movie, he couldn't believe it. He walked into my office and was just like, how did they do that stuff? Like, I, And so I handed him the issue of Cinefantastique that I have that goes into great detail. And he spent like the rest of the afternoon reading about it. And then he watched the movie again the next day. So that stuff still holds up. It's, it's not only so well executed from a sort of artistic standpoint, but it's also just incredibly inventive and creative for that time period and even since so again you know everything has been said about how good those scenes were you know like when that dog's face peels back but i want to talk about a couple things about the thing one of them was again i mentioned earlier my friend dan and i were, were totally into sort of makeup effects at the time so we we had the thing on our radar for about a year before it came out we'd been reading little things about it in magazines and things like that. So we were, we were getting very excited, especially the fact that Botine was attached to it. So I'm in the movie theater before Conan the Barbarian's going to come on. It's the night the movie's released. So the theater is packed. And it is packed with people who, you know, are literally the target audience for Carpenter's The Thing. And the screen goes black and the trailers start running and the first trailer, and I know right away what movie it is because I've been following this, is The Thing. And the first shot is the shot of that spaceship going through space with the little sparks coming off of it heading toward Earth. And I'm like, oh shit, yeah, this is going to be great. And that first trailer is a very, very good trailer, very effective, but it's also very vague. It doesn't really show much. They're just It's more of a teaser. And, you know, it shows through these creepy shots of the uh, the outpost. It shows the dog walking into the kennel really tentatively. Shots of McCready lighting off a flare. You know, just, it's very mysterious. It doesn't really lay out what the movie's about. And of course, then it ends on the shot of Bennings turning to the camera with his gnarled hands, howling in the thing voice. And then the screen kind of goes black and the words, the thing, start to burn through the screen. And as the words start burning through the screen, the audience that I saw it with all start laughing. And I don't mean just like a little Twitter of laughter running through the crowd. I mean out loud, uproarious laughter at the title of the movie. And I knew right at that moment, I was like, you know what? This movie's going to bomb because people are not going to go see a movie called The Thing. The Shawshank of its time. No one wanted that title. Yep, nobody wanted the title. And I also think the vast majority of people in that audience probably didn't realize it was a remake of the James Arness movie. 
-hmm. They probably didn't realize there was a book that it was based on and that this was going to be very different than that James Arness version, uh, which all I knew because I had been reading about it. And I knew right at that moment, I was like, you know what? Got to get out there the first weekend that this is out because it's probably not going to be around for very long. And that was my theory on the title of the movie was only played out when, when my friend Dan and I went and saw it. There was a couple of other friends of mine that I was like, hey, you know, we're going to Friday to see this movie. Do you want to come? And they'd be like, well, what movie are you going to see? And I'm going, we're going to see that movie, The Thing. And they'd be like, really? The reaction was very similar, that people didn't want to see a movie called The Thing. And there's a lot of reasons why that movie failed. But I think that's the one that nobody really talks about, was the title was just, and it is, it's kind of a goofy title. I think, I think when I recommended it to my son when he was 16, and I said, yeah, it's this movie called The Thing. I, he gave me the same kind of raised eyebrow, like, really? That title says nothing. You got to hear it in Kurt Russell's voice pointing and saying, that thing down there is trying to replicate us. And then it has all the resonance. Right. When it's flat words on a poster, maybe not. Right. It's, it's almost like the title of a movie that they, what else would you call that movie? But it's almost like a, the title of a movie, like they couldn't think of anything better. So it's just like, oh, we'll just call it, you know, the thing. So I do, I think the title of that movie was a major hindrance for people going to see it. I have a, a quick aside because you brought up the fact that it was based on the story. The uh, original piece by uh, John W. Campbell was called Who Goes There? And it was first published as a short story. However, John W. Campbell wrote that as a full-length novel, but he couldn't sell it. So he chopped the story down to this tiny version of it. That is the thing that inspired the original The Thing, the James Arness movie, and everything that came after it. The popularity of all of this, especially the Carpenter film, has led to the rediscovering and republic the first time publication of the full novel is now available that's interesting I, I read the short story and i will say this since we are talking about the movie the thing i saw i'll circle back to the book again in a little bit we went and saw it the night it came out and i liked it the first time i saw it but i didn't love it and the reason i didn't love it had nothing to do with any flaws that carpenter could fix my problem with it the first time I saw it was it, it broke a kind of standard, which I didn't even know I had at the time, rule in my head about movie making, which is you can't put your best scene in the middle of your movie. <laughs> and the thing, the thing actually has diminishing returns with each appearance of the monster as that movie goes along. The kennel scene is great. The Nora scene is better. Then the Palmer scene is like, oh, it's okay. Like, the blood test is great, it's a great idea, but that scene is kind of goofy when he's sort of flailing around with windows. And, and I also think that was a mistake. I think trying to put a laugh that late in that story, when the body count was that high at that point, was misguided. I, I don't think that, that that scene should have been played as comedically as it, as it was. Like when, you know, the guys are like, untie Mr. Untyus, you know, like, you know, you're waiting to sort of what I talked about earlier with dramatic payoff. You know, you're going to see this thing in all its glory at some point. And basically, even Carpenter in uh, many interviews since said he just couldn't do with the effects at the time what he wanted to do for that that finale, which is, you know, why they had shot. They'd attempted some stop motion images of the Blair monster at the end. 
um, because he wanted something bigger. He wanted something better, but he just couldn't do it. And he, and he was right. He was right not to use that stop motion because I've seen that footage and it just would have been glaringly obvious that it, it didn't work. So I give him credit for not doing that, but that movie ends a little flat. Right. So I see it in 82 and that's sort of my general feeling on it. I saw it twice in 82. I saw it early in the summer and then I saw it late in the summer on a double feature with, ironically enough, Conan the Barbarian. And um, of course, I revisit it every now and again when it comes out on VHS. And little by little, it starts to grow on me because I start to sort of realize the limitations of what he had to work with at the time. But where I really started to appreciate that movie wholeheartedly was when I read the short story that it was based on. Because every decision they make where they deviate from that book is the right decision. They literally cherry pick all the good stuff out of that story. Because that story is kind of, it's kind of clunky. It was kind of a, a difficult read. And after reading that story and going, somebody read this story and made that movie out of this story? I, I want to just applaud, like how they got that from this is beyond, like that took some skill, you know, to see through what was essentially a sort of cheesy Lovecraftian kind of knockoff to me anyway, when I read it and turn it into this sort of horror classic. I gave them all the kudos in the world. And then I started watching it again with fresh eyes and realizing how much of that movie really works. Well, one of the things a friend of mine pointed out to me a decade ago, which I've never forgotten, is he said the first viewing of every movie that you, your first viewing of any movie is figuring out what the movie isn't. Because while you're watching it, you have expectations and you are rewriting it in your head. Things seem odd or clunky. Sometimes things seem too good and too smooth. And on a rewatch, you go, oh, that's awful. I don't know why I like that before. Yeah. And it can seriously impact what rewatching something, how it will remain in your, in your mind forever as something you love, even though you might look back on certain films and think to yourself, I didn't enjoy this at all on the first viewing. And then becomes one of your favorites. Right. Right. I, I will say, I still feel, I'm, I'm not saying that anything I thought about that movie, about John Carpenter's The Thing in 1982, the first time I saw it, is invalid. Because they are valid. They're very valid criticisms. But I think what changed in me as I got older, started working in comics, doing some writing and stuff myself, and sort of trying to figure out how to construct a script or a story, I started to appreciate it more for how much of it they got right. And, and they did. They, the whole movie works. It's just, like I said, because of the limitations of the special effects at the time, the third act is a little flat. Right. But that's it. That's about the extent I'll go. The other thing I love about Carpenter's The Thing is, even though it came out in 1982, it is... In my opinion, it's the last great 70s movie. It is so nihilistic in that way that 70s films were. From the minute the thing emerges from the dog in the kennel, there's never a moment through the rest of that story where you feel 
that the humans have the upper hand. Maybe a little bit when it goes when it's down to the final four of them, which is McCready and Gary and Knowles and Childs, and they go out to the shack to take care of Blair. But then the minute you see him building that spaceship underneath, you realize, oh no, he's still ahead of you. The thing is still one, two, three steps ahead of you guys. And all that movie is from the minute the thing reveals itself is one sort of downturn after another. It's things going sideways and then going sideways again and then going sideways again. And that's what I love about it. Again, if that movie was made today, there's no way they would do that. There would have to be, I'm not even saying the ending would have to be a happy ending because I love the ending of that movie, but there would have to be, somebody would be like, this needs more jokes in it. Let's have somebody come in and punch this up and make it funnier. And I'm all for humor. I love a good comedy. I talked about how I love the, the humor and the howling. It worked perfectly in that movie. This movie, that's the beauty of it, is it's, it's utter seriousness of the situation that's taking place. I, I also love that movie because it's just such a, you know, it's, it gets right into it. I, I love the opening with the helicopter and the dog. You, you know, again, if this movie was made today, every character would have, have a backstory. They just overkill everything these days. And now it's like you learn just enough about everybody in that camp as the story's going along that you need to know. And I love that. And I love that about movies of that era in particular. I see so many movies these days where they feel this need to like elevate a secondary character or multiple secondary characters to main character status. And all that does is take away from your main character. It becomes less a story about that person and now it becomes a story about these five people. Peter Jackson is the worst offender of this in my opinion. He doesn't understand that a movie needs a sort of character hierarchy. And the thing, McCready is the main character. Everyone else is subordinate to him. He is the leader. This is the guy we're following the story through. Everyone else is going to have these, their little moments in the movie, but they're all going to be secondary characters. But in The Hobbit, it's like, is this Bilbo's story? No, it's now it's the dwarf story. Now it's this dwarf story. Now it's this guy's story. It becomes, he divides it up so many, he slices that pie so many times that it just, it becomes a mess. You don't really know what that story's about. And um, that's what I, that's one of the things I love about, about the thing. That, that is a, it's a really tight script. It gets right into it. And the other thing I like about it too, another thing about that movie that they wouldn't do today is I think one of the things that makes that movie effective is the fact that it's an all male cast. So by what I mean by that is men are supposed to be the heroes. They're supposed to be the ones that do everything right and keep their heads and stay calm. And to see a room or a building full of men slowly losing their shit was kind of kind of cool and kind of like kind of groundbreaking in a way. If they made that movie to that now, of course they would they would inject some female characters into it, like, like they did the prequel. And not only that, but I love I love all the guys they cast. Not only is it a, is it a cast full of men. 
but it's a cast full of a lot of men over like 45 years old. And now they'd make it, it'd be a whole bunch of 30-somethings. They'd all be sort of interchangeably good-looking. But like, that's the beauty too about who Carpenter cast in that movie. Because they all have such distinct looks, you meet them, you hear their name. Oh, that's Windows. I know because I know what he looks like because he's so distinct. Oh, that's that's Knowles. Oh, that's Copper. Because they all look so distinctly. Once you hear their name and their name associated with their face, you don't forget it. But, uh, you know, it's a great movie. And, of course, the ending is just perfect. It's one of the most perfect endings. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's upsetting. And it's also it lingers with you forever. I love people that like watch that movie over and over again and yet still debate whether McCready's the thing or not. And I think to myself, if you've really watched that movie over and over again, you know he's not the thing. Because the movie never leaves him after the blood test. It never it never leaves him after he's killing things on his own for long periods. Right, but even regardless, maybe that's the thing's tactic. Mm -hmm. If it can split itself up, it can afford to kill parts of itself, maybe. But from the blood test scene on where he clears himself, it never leaves him. He never has an opportunity to get assimilated. So I love when people are like, well, I think McCready's the thing at the end. But no, it's not. He's not. Childs, on the other hand, probably is. But they never fully tell you, you know, which I love. Let's get past the thing and move on to another Rob Bottin project that I know you wanted to bring up. Yes. Uh, this one, obviously less a Rob Bottin project. Not that he wasn't involved in it, but that's not what, it's not why I love it. Paul Verhoeven's Robocop. Um, I'm not one of these people that like, likes to make like lists. I'm like, oh, it's my favorite movie or blah, blah, blah. But there's no doubt that if I had to make a list, it was, this would be in my, probably my top three movies of all time. It. Everything about Paul Verhoeven's Robocop, it just works. And I always say about that movie, it's about as close to a perfect movie as I think you can actually get. And by that, I mean, you were talking earlier, you mentioned, which was actually a really good segue into this movie. You mentioned about sitting in a movie with with sort of preconceived notions and sort of editing it in your head as you watch it. And you're right. People do do that. I do that. I, I'll watch a movie and I'll go, yeah, you know, this scene's kind of dragging on. Or like I'll be watching a scene in a movie and I'll go, yeah, okay, this is clearly just thrown in here for exposition so we kind of know what's going on. RoboCop is a perfect movie in that there's not a second of wasted film or dialogue in that entire movie. I defy anybody to watch that movie and say, well, this scene could be a little shorter. I just glanced at the running time, and it is half an hour shorter than I thought it was. It's only one hour and 42 minutes. I was positive it was over two hours. Nope. That movie is tight as a drum. And I have watched that movie more times than any other movie with the exception of maybe Jaws. I have watched it over and over again. And I marvel at not only how good the script is, but how the editing is 
it's perfect. I, I keep going back to that word. I hate to use that word because no piece of art is ever really perfect, but it is perfect. There's not one thing in that movie that I would change because anything I changed would make the movie a little worse. And it's that that even doesn't even begin to touch on like all the other parts of the movie, like the fact that it's both sort of dark and hilarious at the same time. Robocop's an interesting movie too in that it was one of those that I had no desire to see. Me neither. I had no desire to see it. I, I had seen the trailer, thought, okay. And um, I remember getting a phone call Saturday morning at like 10 o'clock in the morning from Rich Head and the guy I was working on Roachmill with at the time, the, my, the writer and penciler of Roachmill. And Rich was a guy, he was a Friday night movie guy. Every Friday night, like clockwork, him and some friends or sometimes him and his dad would go out to the movies. And for him to call me at 10 o'clock in the morning was really unusual. And he calls me, phone rings. I pick it up. It's Rich. He's like, hey. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I went and saw Robocop last night. Go see it. And I'm like, I'm like, okay. And now Rich loved to talk movies. So I'm sitting there going, you're going to give me more than that? And he just laughs. And he goes, no, man, just go see it. So like a couple nights later, I got my, my brother and we went and saw it. And I was just like, this is so good. Another thing about RoboCop that I absolutely love, and this harkens back again to Rich Hedden. When we first started working on Roach Mill, Rich had a lot of little rules about telling a story in a comic that have stuck with me since. And when we were writing, when we were working on Roach Mill number one, in the very first issue of Roach Mill, before anybody knows who this character is, you're introduced to him. And the first time you see him, is in a police lineup with a bunch of other shady characters and some of them are aliens and some of their like just a really weird group of of people and rich always said that whether it's a comic or a movie or a tv show you only have one opportunity to introduce your main character and he goes you have to get that right you have to get it it's got to be cool or scary or funny depending on how you want to introduce that character what you're trying to tell the audience about that character and i absolutely love the way verhoven did robocop's introduction in that movie because it just was so it was such a he took such a chance with it which is he basically introduces robocop through images of him through his own eyes as he's getting built and then in his first, sh the first shot you see of RoboCop in the movie, the very first shot isn't even like this big, you know, cool shot of him kicking down a door. It's literally through his own eyes on a little screen, on a little monitor in the corner of the movie screen. Like it's, it's, he gets up, they remove the plastic, they're all celebrating. Yay, RoboCop, RoboCop. He stands up, the camera tracks up, and then he starts walking forward, and there's all these cameras on him. And there's this little monitor in the corner of the shot where you see him go by in profile. It's brilliant. It is a brilliant introduction to a character. And then he arrives at the police headquarters and he, you hear him walking through the police headquarters, but you're not seeing him. You're only seeing glimpses of him. You'll see him like round a corner. He disappears behind this sort of frosted glass. And the cops are all like, hey, what's this? And they're all intrigued by it. And they, they start running and sort of follow them. What's going on here? And then, of course, you hear the, the gunshots in the police firing range. 
And then the first real clear shot you get of him is after he's emptied his gun and he just he cocks his arm back, twirls his gun and sticks it in his holster. And it's just the perfect introduction to a character I've ever seen put on film. Like, if you're not on board now, if you're not like, damn, you're not going to be going forward after that. Well, a big part of it is how gorgeous he is. And that's the Rob Bottin part. He designed that figure. Right. It took him a year to figure out what that was going to look like. And there must have been a hundred steps where he started to sculpt it, tried something, and it just looked clunky. Somehow that streamlined helmet, the body, the movements, it... What you were saying before is it's... You almost want to chastise yourself when you say, but it's a perfect movie. What I want to say about RoboCop is it is a perfect storm of opposing tones that should not work. Verhoeven said over and over, I want the comedy out of this film. He commissioned drafts of the script where they cut every bit of humor out of it. And he hated those versions, and he still didn't want to shoot those scenes. But when you watch that movie, those little comedic elements, the strange commercials, the... Right. The banter that's so over the top in places, but it all works. And right. It's magic. No, it is. It really is. It, it, their sort of satire of sort of corporate life is almost sort of, it's almost like Kubrick and Strangelove. Like they are, they're playing it kind of just straight enough where it doesn't take you out of the movie. But it is very like, again, when the scene I was talking about before, when they're building Robocop. And the doctor says to uh, Miguel Ferrer's character, he's like, yeah, you know, we were able to save the left arm. And he's like, did he sign the waiver? You know, yeah, lose the arm. He snaps his fingers like, you know, he's product at this point. And that stuff is all still as relevant as ever. I mean, Robocop is still as relevant as ever, the whole movie. But yeah, no, it, it is a perfect storm of stuff that works. And going back to Botine's suit, you're absolutely right. Doing a a robot movie or a cyborg movie, I guess is technically what it is, in that era where you were going to put a guy in a suit, man, that was rife to just go wrong. It just could have literally been laughable, but that suit works beautifully. I always liked it too, that how RoboCop seemed almost like a tank in that movie. Must have been like the advent of the invention of the tank, where all of a sudden it's like, mm -hmm. hey, wait a minute, our bullets can't penetrate this thing. Now what do we do? And, uh, you know, I always thought that that was sort of the appeal of that, so the sort of physical appeal of that character was these guys are used to just pulling out their guns and shooting everything, and now all of a sudden they can't. But the other thing about that movie I want to talk about, too, is it also, at its core, handles all the emotional beats just right. There's not a lot of them, and that's what I like about it. They don't go over the top, but when they hit, they land and they hit with a lot of ferocity. Like the scene where RoboCop goes to visit his old house. Like he finds out that there was this cop, Murphy, and he goes to the house he lived in. And he walks in and the, his wife and his son have moved. They've sold the house. And there's sort of these cameras in there, these sort of remote realtor video screens. They're like, welcome to, you know, 17 Primrose Lane. And they're, they're describing the house as you move through it. And the camera is tracking, following RoboCop, moving through the house. And as he's moving through the house, he's getting these glimpses, these little memories of what it was like when he lived there. And he's just getting 
angrier and angrier until the very end when he just comes to the last screen and he just puts his fist through it. And it's a great scene. It's a great scene because of how unheavy handed it is. He, he doesn't start screaming, oh my God, you know, it's, it's, it's so well done. And then later on, when he removes his helmet and we see his human face for the first time, and uh, he says to Officer Lewis about his family, I can feel them, but I can't remember them. And I remember sitting in the theater and that, that line just like, it's like a punch in the gut. In, in this otherwise sort of over-the-top movie, that stuff all still sticks and lands. And you're right. That's really hard to do. If I may uh, quickly interject, I, I find myself in the difficult position of defending a moment in RoboCop 2, which is not a film I really want to get too deep into. But there's a very good moment in that film, which would have fit in the original movie almost. During the course of the film, you find out that his wife has realized Alex Murphy is RoboCop, and she's been petitioning them to see him and communicate with him. And he finally ends up in a moment where she confronts him. And when she's screaming at him, I know it's you, Alex, he, he looks her in the eye and he says, they made this to honor him, which just shuts her down. And he's saying, I'm just going to pretend I don't remember you and I'm just a thing, which I, I really enjoyed that moment, but it's in a giant mess of a movie. So <laughs> I see and and. I will go the other side of that. That's great. Let's hear it. Which is, I'm not, especially back in 1987 when, or 88, when 87 when Robocop came out, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't really a, a sequel guy. But when that movie ended, when Robocop turns to the audience and you know, the guy says, what's your name, son? And he says, Murphy. And the credits, the word Robocop appears on the screen. The music starts up. One of those rare movies that as soon as it was over, I started going, man. This movie has so clearly set up an excellent sequel. It, the sequel was, was literally right there in front of them, which is RoboCop is essentially the top of the sort of law enforcement food chain now at this point. The criminals don't really have much of a weapon against him. He starts cleaning up old Detroit. It's actually working the way he's supposed to work. And then someone, someone in the criminal underground finds out he's Murphy. It finds out that mm -hmm. Murphy has a wife and a kid, and now it becomes a revenge story. And it could have been very much like Frank Miller's Daredevil Born Again series, which is, well, now that they know he's Murphy, how can we attack him without actually attacking him directly? It could have been really good and really smart. And the fact that, I don't know, that, that scene you're talking about happens very early in RoboCop 2. It was, it was almost like Miller said... Well, I got to address the fact that he's got a wife and a kid, so let's get rid of them right away. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, he threw out, in my opinion, his most juicy holdover plot point from the first movie, which is his family. And I actually, strangely enough, had a long conversation with Frank Miller about RoboCop 2 when I worked at Dark Horse. He was at one of the post-convention dinners, and uh, we started talking, and I mentioned, I said, I said, I'm a huge RoboCop fan. I said, but I'm not going to lie. I did not like the sequel. And he, he laughed and he said, yeah, it's, it, you know, he was very honest about it. He told me about how it was rushed and how they were worried about the writer strike coming up. And so they had to get, the, so he told me all the background about where it went wrong. And so 
I felt a little sorry for him in the situation he was in, but I also thought to myself, there was a really, really good RoboCop sequel just sitting there on the table waiting to happen with this guy who was now a human trapped in a machine who has a wife and a kid out there somewhere. They could have really played up more on the, uh, you know, his comments about remembering and not feeling his family. But yeah, they just seemed to toss all that out the window and just said, you know, let's just give us a, a big fight between two RoboCops. The Marvel method. You're, you're not wrong. It is like I sometimes I watch movies and I go, I, if I remade this movie, I'd keep that scene and I would keep that part. I'd get rid of this. Oh, I watch RoboCop 2 and there's almost nothing in that movie that I, I would keep. I would still say it's a fascinating mess. I couldn't take my eyes off it. But it's Some movies mess. are. Some movies absolutely are. David Lynch's Dune is a fascinating mess. Oh, 100% agree. Every time it's on, like I wind up watching 20 minutes of it, even if I don't want to. Because it's it's 20 minutes where I'm like, oh, this this weird part. or, But I don't find RoboCop 2 a fascinating mess. I, I find it a sort of like, it's it's sort of a sad movie to me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad movie in that it had talented people involved. It had a great setup. By all rights, it should have at the very least been a decent movie. And instead, it's just a terrible movie. It doesn't work at all. Like, yeah, I don't want to talk about RoboCop 2. Blech. Miss up.